0: did he tell you that you have to perform
1: no no he did not
0: I did not
2: <laughs> but you can if you want to <laughs> did... <bad>.
1: Well, <laughs> he did not you know, I'll just, at, at the, in the final five minutes I'll give my commentary on the conversation
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> it's now time for Kevin's podcast about our podcast <laughs> the
1: it's
2: the reaction podcast <laughs> oh, yeah. This episode was produced and sound designed by Burgundy Sound Studio. Burgundy Sound Studio, sound better.
0: Hello and welcome to Worda Podcast. I'm Evie.
2: Hey, I'm Bill. How are you, Bill? Uh, I'm okay. Yeah, can't complain. In this 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 no time, no space atmosphere, we uh, exist in here. I'm doing quite well.
0: Yeah, we're just hanging over oblivion.
2: It's, it, you know, right. There's no gravity. It's airless. It's awesome. We're in oblivion. Yeah, just yeah. suspended in midair, looking yeah. into the, the vast chasm. Yeah, it's just great.
0: Just eating from the tubes.
2: Right, the cap capsule food. Yeah. Packets of yeah, goo that we eat in space. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, great. Like washing your hair with like floating
2: water. Right, little <laughs> globules of water that are floating in the space. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wearing socks all the time indoors. I love it. I love it. socks. Yes.
0: Fuzzy socks. Well, it's
2: cotton <laughs> socks for me. That's all.
0: <laughs> so, shall we talk about our guest?
2: Yeah, I think so. He's been waiting for hours and we should let him in.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So, hi Kevin. I can never <laughs> pronounce your surname. Thank you. Hi. How are you today?
1: Um, I, I'm I'm doing well. Yeah, um I'm looking forward to the podcast so I'm I'm pretty energized.
0: <laughs> so, can you tell uh, our listeners who don't know about you who you are?
1: Uh yeah, uh sure. Um uh, who am I? Uh I am a um uh, adopted South Korean uh, boy, uh grew <laughs> up uh, in the Netherlands. And um I um I am incredibly insanely passionate about behavioral change. Mm-hmm. And um, that is also how I make my living. I'm um, self-employed, behavioral change enthusiast. Uh, I get hired by uh, organizations to usually run six to twelve month programs uh, for them to help people internally uh, sustain with change behaviors. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I, I've always had a, a, a fascination for words as a as a kid. Uh, I think the history of, of my fascination for words traces back all the way to. When I was six years old um, and and that's my hobby, so spoken word, uh, writing poetry, performing it on stages. Um, yeah um, that's I guess that, that's that's what I do and um, and yeah be, being adopted growing up in the Netherlands uh, identity uh, has always been uh, 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 the constant sort of factor throughout my life the question about what does identity mean
0: yeah. And how was it for you to grow up in? Because you didn't grow up in uh, Amsterdam, right?
1: No, I, I grew up in… The, uh, so I grew up in uh, my first part of my childhood. I grew up in a small village, like 2,000 people. And then the other second half of my childhood, I grew up in the countryside uh, with farms and fields. Wow, wow. okay. And um, um, so, so uh, I think growing up on the countryside was great because as a kid, um, having all that sort of… For me, that was, that was freedom. Um, and, um, and I enjoyed it. Um, I think the, what people often… Be, what people often think mm-hmm. is that… Uh, my life must, must be easier in Amsterdam than it was back in the countryside. I think this is probably one of the biggest mis- misconceptions that people have. Um, I, I worked on a farm… Uh, I, started, I started working on a farm when I was uh, about 12 years old. So like, on, wow. on, on weekends. And um, the most sort of accepting people uh, that I've met were farmers. Mm. Uh, And people often think, well, you you grew up in a small village, you grew up in the countryside, so people must be very narrow-minded there, must be very intolerant. And Amsterdam must be super tolerant and accepting. And for me, it's been kind of the opposite. Right. Uh, But I do really… I really love living in Amsterdam.
2: How long have you been in Amsterdam for?
1: On and off, uh, ten and a half years. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, with you, some stints somewhere else.
2: I mean, I'm <laughs> sure you've seen some change in the city over ten years. That's enough time to have uh, been here for sure.
1: I think the uh, uh, sure, but, but at the same time, because you live there, um, you it's it's weird because you're part of the change. So sometimes it's it's harder to to pinpoint what has changed in Amsterdam because a lot of that change then happens gradually rather than if you leave the city for five years and then come back.
2: Mm. Uh, yeah. This is myopia. If you're looking at it every single day, you just kind of get used to the smell. Yeah. That would be… Yeah. Right. So I… You know, I'm fascinated. I love this term. When I was when I was researching you, I saw the idea of behavioral, um, behavioral change enthusiast. Is that what you called yourself? Yeah. Was that a, a term that you coined? I mean, is that something… Because I've never heard it before. But I think it is… The sort of perfect, you know, linguistic terminology, the perfect crystallization of a concept that we're all sort of right on the cusp of now. Yeah. You know, and it's like people, uh, I mean, obviously back where I'm from in the United States, we're fighting this battle and it's going one way or the other. Um, But, I mean, that, thats it's a real great way to put that. The idea is like, well, you are trying to, you know, change people's behavior. And, I mean, it's its fascinating that you, you know, you've dedicated your life to this, but it seems that you— have figured out a way to apply this to the world. I mean it's it's you know it's inside your professional life, it's inside yeah. your personal life, your 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 public life also at the same time. Yeah. It's it's really a part of a crusade almost. Yeah. yeah, it's um so I find so labels like expert uh, uh
1: sometimes difficult. Uh because um um in a lot of fields, uh, expertise is developing, is evolving. So what, if, if if your expertise stems from like 20 years ago, it is very likely to be outdated today. Yeah. Yep. And um and so behavioral science is also developing. And um and so I I to to call myself a behavioral change expert sounded wrong to me. And and so I and 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 that is important because if I tell a client who what I do and who, who I am, uh, I, I want to make sure that it, what I say is comes with conviction and 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 I I own it 100%. And so, the the also the label trainer or coach was was something I could never really relate to, and then um, uh, I always said I'm 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 passionate about behavioral change. So at some I, I don't remember when, but then at some 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 point. It was, oh, enthusiast. Because that's what I am. <laughs> I'm an enthusiast about behavioral change. And and I'm constantly l- trying to learn more about it, reading books, listening to podcasts, documentaries, um, because I don't want to... Also, I don't want to get stuck in this idea that I'm already there. Like, once you, you're an expert, and, I, and, I, and I've noticed that a lot with people in in science, I already know this. Or even in my work with, with like, um, executives, they're like, yeah, I know what leadership is. Show me, and then, and then obviously they, they fail to show it. So, so they got stuck in this idea that they already are an expert and they don't have to learn anything
2: else anymore. That's perfect, man. Yeah, the idea that you can't evolve. I mean, clearly the world around you is grinding on, but these people get stuck in transpositions. Yeah, and it becomes fixed in the dogma of whatever year that they yep. got installed. Yeah.
0: So, what's the most interesting uh, thing about human behavior that? Uh Fascinates you also. <laughs> um, oh
1: wow! Um, <laughs> th- th- there are so many things, but um, so um, th- th- okay. So so because there's too many things that I find fascinating about behavior, uh, human behavior, but I'll highlight a few. Yeah. Um, uh, in random order, one. Um, uh, uh people have a um. Uh, People completely misunderstand how behavioral change works so so most people think that just good intentions and a goal is enough for mm. for behavior to change, and that is fundamentally wrong like it, it's not that intentions and goals don't don't matter, but mm-hmm. it is far less important than people think it is. The other thing that uh, people and it's it's a lot of misconceptions and myths a lot of an, another thing that, that I've noticed a lot is that people uh think that uh they are in full control over their own behavior mm-hmm. and philosophically speaking you can argue you are in control of your behavior but mm-hmm. it it does dismiss the the impact and influences of external inf- Im- influences so yeah. our behavior in the supermarket is influenced by very smart marketeers. um our beha- like and, and as soon as there are more people involved yeah. so in my case when i when I work with organizations, it's it's people working together. Uh, so there are multiple people involved. Your behavior and your responses will influence mine. Yeah. And it would be naive to believe that my behavior um, exists in a vacuum. And so uh, a lot of people completely do not take that into consideration. Right. They think like, oh, that's easy because I can do that. And then they, they don't take into consideration that, well, there's... The moment you get together with other people their behavior, their attitude, their mood, their energy will impact yours. Um, um, And that's another misconception about behavioral science. And then uh, the third thing I'll I'll highlight is, and this is something that keeps coming back in my work, and this is probably also sadly why I have a job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, There are four things that I've noticed, uh, regardless of culture, regardless country, fields, industry, hierarchy, age, gender, Uh, et cetera, that that keeps coming back in Mm -hmm. the work that I do uh, from my observations. And that is, um, as human beings, we are incredibly bad at listening when it matters. We're not bad at listening, but we're bad at listening when it matters. Two, we are significantly more judgmental than we'd like to admit. (laughs) Three, we are very bad at transforming conflicts. So most people are either good at running away from conflicts or they're good at just trying to manage the conflict to an extent that it doesn't, you know, escalate. Mm. But we're not very good because we haven't learned the skills throughout our lives consciously on, on how to transform conflicts. And then the fourth thing that keeps popping up is um, we, as human beings, we're wired for stories. So we create, like our brain is, creates narratives in split seconds. Yeah, uh, We see something happening and we create a narrative about it. Some, somebody does something to us that we don't like, and we create a narrative about that person. Yeah. Right? Um, a, a person cuts us off in line, and we create a narrative about that person. <laughs> and we do that in split seconds. And we don't realize how quickly we create those narratives and how much those narratives influence our energy, mood, behavior. And so those four things keep coming back. And oh. it, is, <laughs> it is interesting, and, and there's an explanation for that as, as well, is that in school... We get taught all these courses like maths, language, geography. Yeah. Um, we learn how to do these calculations like the tables, <laughs> like, like one times five, two times five, yeah. three times five. And, and we learn them by heart. So we consciously learn all these, what we consider uh, often hard skills. But at no point throughout our, our, uh, our educational uh, life do we learn very consciously and deliberately interpersonal skills. So if we do end up having fairly well-developed interpersonal skills, it's it's more sheer luck often <laughs> than that it was a, a deliberate plan, right?
0: Or by accident?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, well, which is luck, yeah. I guess.
2: <laughs> you know, um, I found that at the age I'm at now, and the circles that I run, people who let's say look like me and have my own cultural background, I think, I, I think everything you're saying, I, again, this is this is it's, it's, it's a superb way of thinking about it and it's a um, a great way to term this and it occurs to me that one of the threats that people think that there's this fear of rebuke there's this fear of punishment that comes from any of this examination that uh, mm. the minute that you begin to track behavior the minute that you engage in any discussion it's merely for the purpose of being squashed or being yeah. told you're wrong yeah. And I, you know, this is the problem I can see even just having rational discussions with people is that they can't wrap their head around it being almost like a neutral or benign conversation. It's punitive. And I mean, I haven't seen anybody, uh, other than, you know, your sort of technique that you're describing, I haven't heard anybody, you know, talk about it in a way that seems constructive or at least, you know, you mute that punishment aspect of it.
1: And I guess that that comes back also to uh, some of the myths around uh, behavior and misunderstandings is um, uh, myself included, um, uh, as, as, as human beings, we, we, we are uh, often biased to think that behavior equals identity. So uh, my behavior is, is my identity. Um, but behavior can be changed. Uh, like riding a bike, learning to ride a bike, does not mean anything really about your identity per se. You can, you can turn it into an identity statement, but it's not necessarily identity. So your, riding a bike has no bearing on your gender identity, uh, uh, sexual orientation, uh, race, you know, ethnicity—nothing. But as soon as somebody says something about our identity, so, so, for example, feedback, like at work, somebody gives feedback, or in in uh, somebody calls out something that might be gender biased or racially biased, um, and it's it's a uh, somebody says something about what we do or what we say very quickly we usually immediately jump to the conclusion oh are you saying that i'm a bad person mm. so one is addressing behavior and then on the res- receiving end we kind of usually perceive that as an identity attack and we need to learn to separate identity from behavior
0: it's super interesting
2: I, I, it's almost like another it's another consequence of tribalism to some degree i mean again you know i'm coming from a very tribal uh, atmosphere right now back in my, my home country and trying to pick through this is you know quite literally the the mission of our of our day and age our times is to you know guide the human race through some sort of transformation to you know a better yeah. uh, a better way of relating to itself and so people can just be more harmonious yeah so
0: now I would like to speak about well, what I'm very proud of is that I've witnessed your debut as a poet. <laughs> Back in, I don't know, what was it? 2, 3 years ago?
1: 3 years ago, yeah. Probably,
0: yeah. Wow, time flies.
1: Probably 3 years ago,
0: December. Wow. Okay. So, uh you call yourself word magician? Is that uh... true? <laughs> so, how did you how was your journey to poetry?
1: Uh, so, so my journey into poetry started probably eight years ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, when I discovered spoken word poetry uh, through through the internet. Um, YouTube is great for <laughs> for for discovering. So, and I, I I probably I was on a website like I don't know Buzzfeed or or something like that, and and I came across a spoken word video of a North American of a Canadian poet.
0: Right.
1: And and it it got me hooked. I was mesmerized and. Apart from the poetry exposure that you get in school, um, <laughs> but that was my first real introduction to spoken word poetry, and that was probably about eight years ago. And I think six years ago I started writing. I think that was more of a need, a personal need, rather than a, a, a drive to ultimately to, to in that moment perform. But it was a personal need to to write to uh, process uh, my, uh, my my emotions, my feelings, mm. my experiences, and. Uh, I think because my initial introduction to the, the world of spoken word was uh, uh, seeing another poet perform spoken word on the internet, um, I think in the back of my mind, there was always this idea, like at some point it has to get on stage. Um, mm. <laughs> so initially the writing was for myself, but then eventually um, about three years after I started writing, um, uh, I started looking into spoken word communities. Um and that's when I discovered
2: Word Up. Yay. <laughs> did you ever have, with, did you ever balk at um, being a, a sort of on stage? You know, the idea that you are part of the show, you are creating, you are creating the charisma that you are projecting. You know, a lot of people just want the work to lead and they don't want to have to be the person who's reciting it or creating a performance. But obviously you don't strike me as a person who has much timidity. Maybe you do inside, but I see a public persona that's very confident. Um, did you ever struggle with that or was it a natural yeah, for fit? Yeah, sure,
1: yeah. yeah. I, re- I remember the first uh, the first time performing at Word Up. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't December. It was sort of like mid-December. It was, uh, and a couple of friends wanted to be there as well. But it was, it's mid-December so it was also the time where people had Christmas dinners and stuff. Yeah. And so, some of my friends had texted me that they would probably be running late. So I had asked, uh, asked Enyo if I could perform in the second half so that my friends would be there. And he said, well, I already put you on in the first, <laughs> but here's the deal. Um, right, like Before uh, you're up, I'll, I'll give you a sign and then you can tell me if you can go or if you want to wait for the second half. And I'll, I'll put someone else on. So I already got a text from my friends that they wouldn't be able to make it. Uh, so, so I could have gone any any time, but as the moment Enio gave me a sign that I was gonna be next, I was so nervous that I I couldn't even speak. Like I was, like, um, and I I kind of lost my voice, and and so I just gave him a sign that I I would I have to go in the second half, and so he put somebody else on, and uh, in during the break I went to the toilet <laughs> and just tried to, you know, uh, get my composure back. Um, uh, that was the first time performing. Um, like incredibly nervous, and and I'm still nervous sometimes uh, performing nowadays. But I think the difference is uh, um, uh, I'm better capable of managing those the nerves. And I think the first time performing, I wasn't capable of of controlling my my breathing and 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 my heartbeat and and my my, my body basically. So I, I, in that moment, I couldn't perform. But nowadays I'm still I'm not as often nervous anymore but uh, depending on the audience depending on what I'm going to perform depending on the context I, I still uh, am nervous and, I, and personally I have this belief that if I don't experience nerves at times then I'm too much in my comfort zone yeah, I understand that
0: so I was wondering if you have something uh, prepared for us today
1: I can I can perform something yeah okay Adoption in four chapters. Chapter one. When I was born, I was given up for adoption. And with it, love temporarily gave up on me. Maybe that is why I love the way I do, intense without compromising. Maybe that is why I hug a little tighter every time we say goodbye. Maybe that is why I jump head over heels every time love pushes me to the edge. Because I know what it feels like when love leaves without explanation. Chapter 2. When I was adopted, my name changed from An Kwang Su to Kevin Groen. My name, a game of Scrabble. My name, an upgrade, an improvement. My name, a winning combination. An Kwang Su. 22 points, but no premiums. Kevin Groen, 18 points, but triple word value. Society continues to question my identity. An Kwang Su. Oof, too difficult to pronounce. Kevin Groen, no, but that's not who you really are, right? Society confused. Society not listening. Society still searching for better letters to describe who I am. Society, fuck you. Chapter three. I have learned that hamster mothers can kill their own young because of scent confusion. Maybe that is why I keep being refused acceptance by my home country born in the womb of my motherland, raised in the resigned embrace of another, and the distinctive scent of both never quite rubbing off. As a kid, I used to believe that if I simply scrubbed long and hard enough, the scent would disappear. But I fear all it ever really did was leave behind an open wound that just won't heal. Chapter 4 They gave you up for adoption with a promise of finding a better home. They never knew that finding home could feel so, so lonely.
2: Wow.
0: Wow. I'm like gasping a little bit. It's so heavy, um, I find. And it's something that's so engraved in your identity, I suppose. And you and your sister, I suppose. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Because you were adopted together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of that carries into like, uh, into your work and your what you're looking for in other people maybe also.
1: Um, it's definitely central to my work. Identity is, has always been a, a, that constant factor. And I think um, I've only been figuring out what identity for me means um, probably in, in the past 10 years. And, uh, and so uh, writing is, for me, a way to explore that and to give words to it. Mm. And, and so being adopted... For me, being adopted has uh, several elements. And that is, uh, one, for me, th- there's a question, what does it mean to be uh, South Korean in the Netherlands? Two, what does it mean to be a South Korean man in mm. the Netherlands? And then three, for example what does being a South Korean man mean for the relationships that I have with people
0: mm.
1: and the way I navigate society? And and that definitely is comes back in my writing.
0: Yeah. And uh, I also wonder, like, you talk about being adopted, but you, I don't know uh, if you talked a lot about your adopted parents.
1: No, I, I don't write a lot about them per se, no.
0: Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Or? Um, I think
1: I think it's not my story to tell,
0: right?
1: And I think my uh, adopted parents—they, um, uh, their experience of what it is to raise two kids of color, being white people themselves—I mm. think is is something that um, uh, I need to be careful if I want to write about it, right. because um, and I think this is this comes back to a, a certain respect and and privilege, like. I can talk about, I think I can talk about why they adopted us because we've openly talked about it. But what it is for them to adopt us and to, and to, to go through that experience, I think is their story. And, yeah. and they need to, in a way,
2: also then give me permission to write about that story.
0: Yeah, of course. That's beautiful.
2: Well, I mean, I feel like your spoken word is like a rocket ride for me to a different planet, you know? And I mean, it's one I'm very grateful to take and I'm very grateful that you're able to, again, crystallize this stuff in language that's so clear to show me something about, you know, the human experience that I know clearly nothing about, you know, as I was, you know, I grew up in a Caucasian family in a middle American suburb, you know, no identity issues whatsoever. And, um... You know, I went through a lot of my life really being unaware of that and without an empathy for that sort of thing. And not, not because I was mean-spirited about it, just because it wasn't really access to those yeah. stories. So it means a lot to hear about this from inside. And again, there's so many intersections that's just so amazing, especially me now being a resident, a visitor, a guest in a foreign country. Um, you know, it's another angle of the culture. There's so many different things going on uh, in terms of how many... Um, how many stories are able to tell simultaneously at the same time? I mean I wonder if 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 you know when you're this is coming this is a cri de cour from you it's coming out of your heart. but I mean you must know at the same time it's gonna hit me in a very different way and I mean you're not trying to be instructive, but you know that it's gonna you know it is yeah. a message for me yeah. it, it winds yeah. up being something I could use. I mean how much does that factor into the way you create this stuff?
1: Um, a, a lot. So I'm on a personal mission. And my mission is to make people feel more alive. And I do that through my work with behavioral change. Because when people own their own behaviors and they become more aware of how behavioral change works and how that impacts their lives, they will feel more alive. But also poetry, is a, a spoken word poetry, is a way to make people feel more alive. Because when people sit in the audience and it hits them, in whatever way, it can be incredibly confronting. It can be painful. It can be relatable, it makes them feel more alive, and in that moment they don't shy away from allowing themselves to feel something that they would otherwise not feel. So you can write a piece about, you know, depression and someone in the audience feels that and they don't push it away, in that moment they feel more alive because they're not numbing themselves. And I think uh, for me, um, actually there's, there's a um, uh, there's a spoken word artist and also a, a host in Berlin, his name is Nani Satzwei. And um, years ago I had a conversation with him at the end of a a poetry slam and and we had a conversation about about the winner and and he he said something uh, that that stuck with me. And and he said, uh, he believes that as an artist, when you take to the stage and you take that time from the audience, you have a responsibility to use your words responsibly. And that stuck with me because I thought that that was spot on. Like um, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a storyteller, whether you're a poet, whether you write prose, you have a responsibility to use your words responsibly, and I think too few artists do that consciously. And and for me, one of the ways to use my words responsibly is to make sure that it 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 comes from a place of purpose, uh, and that purpose is to make the audience feel more alive. You know, and and my worlds of my professional world and my my hobby world of like spoken word, uh, so behavioral change spoken word, they're not separate worlds. They they very much um, mix. So. One of the things that that we tend to do is, right, uh, we we tend to classify certain emotions as bad and certain emotions as good. Like, we was like, happiness is good. Joy is good. Love is good. But anger is bad. Rage is bad. Depression is bad. Frustration is bad. Like, we we tell children, don't be angry, but we never tell someone, don't be happy. (laughs) So... But, but feelings and emotions are part of the human experience, so there is no good or bad. The way I look at it is, um, our relationship to each emotion defines whether the impact of it will be good or bad, will be negative or positive. So you can have a healthy relationship to anger, and you can have an unhealthy relationship to anger. The same way you can have a healthy relationship to, to happiness and an unhealthy relationship to happiness. And w- w- when we try to push our feelings and, and emotions away, that's an unhealthy relationship. And so, spoken word poetry for me is a way to draw it out of people and to let them sit there and i think we need to give the audience more credit because sometimes we feel the need to after a very dark deep you know piece, we feel the need to lift the audience up there's no need to lift the audience up after all, we need to give the audience credit that they can deal with that and 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 The beauty of a spoken word evening is that it can take you on this roller coaster from total bliss to like, holy shit, like I'm feeling down right now or that hit me and I want to go home and cry to suddenly, you know, 10 minutes later, like, oh my God, that is so warm and loving and caring. And um, and to then 10 minutes later again, like I'm angry about the world. (laughs) And and, um, when we allow the audience to experience that, it makes them feel more alive and we start normalizing that, that that's part of the human experience.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like you you feel like you need to balance because you're taught to balance yeah. and like if oh don't be sad, be happy. So it's yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I really agree that and it's with that. And uh it's for me, it's really hard to to stop myself of doing that because I'm like, oh, let's talk about something jolly now. <laughs>
2: Do you um engage with younger audiences? I mean, you mostly do, because I could see there's being a ton of value in which you have to say the younger someone could hear it. These are the lessons that get, you know, concretized so quickly when we approach young adulthood. Um, you know, adolescence is exactly a time when you tune stuff out because you just think it's beneath yeah. you because you're a jerk yeah. when you're a kid. But it's precisely when you need to hear these things, when you're starting to build that identity.
1: Yeah, um, I predominantly work with uh, adults, um, and sometimes I get an opportunity to work with uh, younger people. And when I say younger people, it typically then is in the range of, let's say, 18 to mid-20. But then um, two years ago, I had an opportunity... Uh, no, actually, um, last year, I had an opportunity to work in... A, to spend a week in a school. Like, uh, this was 12, 15-year-olds. And it was a school like in the middle of nowhere in Germany and they had asked me if I, uh, it was just before the summer holiday, they had a, a learning week and that learning week was uh, people like the, the kids, they could just pick subjects that were offered by external people. So not, no teachers. So there was a hip hop wor- uh, workshop. And they asked me if I could do two, two workshops throughout the whole week. So it was, uh, uh, every day, like one and a half hours on each of those subjects with a group that I would be working with for four days. And one was uh, performance, Skills, so more like pre- yeah. presentation skills and the other one was life skills which was the far more fun one because uh, always like life skills what the hell is that so I had to narrow it down but one of the things that we uh, covered during that week uh, in life skills was was um, uh, empathy and another topic that we uh, to- uh, addressed that week in, in life skills workshop was uh, purpose like life purpose like you know big big questions and what I still remember uh, uh, there's many things I remember I'll highlight two things that I'll remember one the the kids they're, so they're they're age 12 to 15 right um they found it so much easier to connect to purpose and and having like a life me like uh, like um uh, life purpose they quickly connected it to uh to the uh, you know things like environment things like just the local communities, uh, empathy, uh, uh, anti-discrimination work. No biggie. Um, so, so I think it's, a, it shows that kids are incredibly receptive to it and they, they have far more capacity to understand these topics than we give them credit for. But the second thing that I remember from that week is on the first day in the life skills workshop, a girl came up to me at the end of the class And, um, she asked me if, if I do work around addiction, I'm not a, I'm not a specialist on addiction. I know just a little bit about addiction and it sometimes comes up in my work, but not in the classic way of addictions, like, you know, like, uh, alcohol addiction or drugs addiction. Well, we talk about addiction at work in terms of work can be an addiction Mm. as well. So, so I, I understand some of the basics, uh, basic concepts there and, and. So I asked her, hey, uh, uh, what do you ask? Uh, What's your interest in addiction? And she told me that her father is is an alcohol addict. And and she she wanted to know if I had some tips for her on how to deal with her father and how to help her father. We're talking about a 12-year-old. We're talking about a 12-year-old girl who has the awareness and the the mental, emotional maturity to go up to a a stranger who she just met two hours earlier, and 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 her intent was to to get more advice and tips and understanding on how to help her father. And she had never talked about this to any other teacher, um, and so um, uh, that experience I remember that because it highlights another another couple of things, and that's one. Um, schools need to spend significantly more time on the emotional development and support for kids. And if we only focus on the subjects, but we don't focus on the kids that we're actually educating in schools, and their stories and and what's going on outside of schools, we're never going to be able to fully, like, properly educate them. And um, it only takes empathy, care, genuine attention, that these kids will open up. And I would love to work more with kids. Um, and one of the things that I, um, that I do every year is um, I have a couple of principles that I try to implement in my life because having, you know, having values is one thing, but mm. that, that just sounds good on paper. So you have to operationalize values. You have to turn them into sort of everyday principles. So one of my principles is uh, spend one month of my time working for free. Uh, and that's my way of giving back. So giving back is the value, mm. uh, but but how do you operationalize that? The rule is spend one month every year working for free. And this project with that school uh, happened because of 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 me always looking for projects to 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 kind of like volunteer my time and my skills. Um, I would absolutely love to work more with schools. So if any of the listeners today, <laughs> you know has some opportunities, uh, reach out to me. Um, I think the problem is, um, I think the challenge is to find uh, projects that are more sustainable.
2: Mm.
1: And I am more interested in projects that I believe have some sustainability in it.
2: Do you feel like you have um, held on to some essential part of being a child? Like in terms of relating, do you remember what it was like to be there? Do you have a childlike portion of yourself that you still hold on to today? And this... this Wonderful adulthood you're giving us.
1: Um, so being adopted, um, one of the things that that and I'll be eternally grateful for is that that our our parents, um, they didn't have to adopt. The they, they adopted because they wanted to. So they, they said, hey, there's a lot of kids in the world that that have no f- no real future, no proper future for them, unless you know, if if it's not for adoption. And so they decide, okay, let's let's give. rather than than adding more children to the world let's give children who need it right now give them a future Um, and um, I'll always be uh, grateful for that that they gave my sister my sister is a doctor and so they gave us they gave us an opportunity for uh, having a future life that we own and I'll always remember that so yes for sure I want every um, not just every adult but I want every child to have a future and if it's not through adoption it can be through access to opportunities attention and care the kind of development that is far more important than learning <laughs> equations in, in school so yeah so so maybe that's the childlike part of me um that i'll always tap into right
0: um and also i will always think um your life is sounds very busy because you're like your um your work and your hobby, as you said, like it's all intertwined. So I'm just wondering, to bring it to the light, I'll note. <laughs> what do you do for fun? Like, what's your, what's uh, Kevin when he's chilling and uh, color coding books?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I, I will say, spoken word for me is is a lot of fun. Yeah. So I I I genuinely enjoy going to spoken word shows without performing, mm. um, and it's also a way to to meet to meet uh, fellow uh, artists and and that that is for me is an enormous source of energy and social connection uh so i would say spoken word is definitely a major part in my life uh a couple of other things that i really enjoy is is cooking and baking and and making coffee like art you know (laughs) quality artisanal coffees at home so I, i i have like a whole like i have six brewing methods at home. I, I want to visit your homes.
2: house, man. You look like the kind of friend I want to have. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I, uh, surprisingly, uh, this will surprise a lot of people probably, but I am incredibly lazy. <laughs> uh, and so on the outside, it looks that, you know, I'm, that I'm super busy, but uh, when I'm at home, I can easily just binge watch series and movies uh, and and spend time watching documentaries listening to podcasts exploring spoken word and mm. and before i know it i've spent like 8 hours online <laughs> um so so that's the other side uh, side um one of the other things that i uh, i enjoy a lot is uh two more things that i really enjoy a lot i enjoy uh creating shared experiences mm. so it can be anything, right? It can be taking friends on a trip or it can be organizing a, a dinner party or something, uh, creating shared experiences. And the other thing is I enjoy traveling, but in in a way, I love to just spend a lot of time in one place or one country
0: mm. rather than
1: kind of like just... Jumping. Yeah, rushing yeah. through and and then really slowing down and sometimes just observing life somewhere else.
0: Mm. Wow, nice, beautiful. And um, another thing I'm wondering (laughs) is because uh, you're so uh, immersed into your work and I always feel also a little bit self-conscious with you. (laughs) Is he analyzing me? Is my behavior... Do you get that from, like, people like... Yes.
1: Friends? And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I Do people... People wonder... Actually, people do wonder whether I'm constantly analyzing and... And and, and so, the truth is, it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, maybe for some people, maybe for some professionals, but, but not for me. So, it is true that I can't disconnect my work from, from who I am. Like mm. That's part of who I am. And I'll always have this... Probably have this fascination for u- human behavior. But... Um, When I meet people like in a bar or at spoken word (laughs) events or for dinner, I'm just me and I'm not actually paying attention in terms of analyzing. That part of like really very consciously analyzing people happens uh, when I'm in that work mode. So when I get, for example, uh, a group, a team, uh, together in a room and I'm in the same room and then uh, I spend one or two two days with them and then that's where that mode goes on and I'm and that's when I am looking at everything that people do and that what they also what they don't do yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so, so, so on, a, on a serious note right like so sometimes I've, I've had people that after they find out what I do they're like okay tell me who I am <laughs> Like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> like, it doesn't. Um, but if you would join a workshop in a setting that I have created
2: mm. for, for a paid scenario, you <laughs> get compensated yeah, for what you do. Then,
1: now I will say, like, if, if you come into a space that I own, that I create, where yeah. I set the rules and you interact within that space, give me half a day and I'll know stuff about you that your best friends don't know about you.
0: Ooh.
2: <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a threat to me. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. I don't have friends. <laughs> so, I, you know, obviously you are um, at least trilingual, if not more linguals. Like, what? How, where do you find the best way to express yourself is? Like, which of those tongues, which of your oh. muttertals, <laughs> which do you, uh, you know?
1: Uh, uh, so, um in terms of poetry, uh, and also emotionally, I feel most comfortable expressing myself in English. And, and, and even though Dutch is my... Uh, Dutch is the language that I grew up with. Depending on how you argue, South Korean would be my... Korean would be my official, like, mother tongue or... Dutch is my first language, but English is the language that I feel most comfortable expressing myself. And I don't really know how that happened <laughs> but also uh, I guess also because uh, when I went to university the study program was entirely in English so basically as of the age of 17 the default language in my life became English mm. and so now I think in English the, the funny thing is when I do when I do work in Dutch or if I sit into into a business meeting that's in Dutch my notes tend to be in English <laughs> which is super weird. But it's because I, I find it easier to translate what I'm hearing in Dutch to English in my notes than to write it in Dutch.
0: I can relate to that. I mean, I also speak a few languages, and for me, English is something that I think about in, I think in, I dream in. Yeah. Sometimes I dream in Spanish, but I don't even speak Spanish, no. so that's. I mean, but else. is that
2: some like Rosetta Stone thing? Like, because we all live in sort of the English-speaking world, that just be, that's become the, the you know the lingua franca of everything.
1: For me, it definitely uh, is true that it became the default ever since I uh, studied, and yeah. ever since it became the default language, because also my work is in English, and most of the the, the educational content that I that I uh, take in tends to be in English. Yeah, so uh, and English is still, yeah, I guess one of the most uh, dominant languages
2: uh, in the world as well. Yeah, and my friends, you know, every time I meet somebody here, and their English is not just um, functional, but it's idiomatically robust, and I'm always surprised by that because of all the countries I've been to. You don't get that kind of English in France I've seen, you don't get that kind of English in Germany, yeah. Portugal, etc., etc. But but here, it's, you know, people do that so excellently, and it has to do with the fact that the culture everybody's eating has been American culture for so long, or Anglophone culture, and that's kind True. of where people, like, grow up. The movies, True. the music, the books, that's where, like, I, it gets into you.
1: I remember as a kid, I watched cartoons from Cartoon Network that were original versions, so mostly American, and they just had Dutch subtitles. thank okay, you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is, it is really useful, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that's how, indeed how, even uh, as a kid, without being conscious about it, yeah. how much uh, English language and, and American pop culture or culture plays a role. Also, I think languages are incredibly fascinating, not just from a perspective of learning language and being able to express yourself in different languages. But I also, I think we underestimate the significance of language in terms of uh, language shapes our reality. So so um, we use language to uh, give meaning to what we experience. Mm. So we see something and we use language to describe what we're seeing. Uh, and people don't don't realize often the significance of that because of certain languages have certain words to describe some things that other languages don't have. Mm -hmm. And research has already shown that when people speak different languages, their voice changes sometimes, different parts of the brain uh, are are used. Uh, So it even affects the way we express ourselves and, and how we express ourselves. I think it's great that I remember in school, we had access to four languages well so so Dutch was of course a language that you had to to learn and English was another language that was obligatory then electives were German and French and then depending on on what level of school you did you also had access to uh, Greek and Latin
0: Hmm.
1: nowadays um, even schools already offer many more languages that you can uh, can learn and so from a a uh, perspective of learning languages and being able to express yourself in different language—that's great. What I don't know for sure is if people, if schools and education pays enough, also enough attention to not just learning the language grammatically, but the significance of language in the way that it shapes our reality.
2: Mm. I'll tell you for damn sure—they didn't do that when I was in school. We just learned the freaking <laughs> language, and that was good enough. That seemed like a miracle in the American public school system. Anyway, <laughs> we even got that far with it.
0: I'm wondering, do you have a favorite word in English? Or in any other languages so that you speak?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> no. No, nothing comes to mind right now. So,
0: hmm. um, Do you have
2: your favorite word? I do. What is it? I don't know if you want me to say it on the air.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Rhubarb?
2: Rhubarb's a good one. <laughs> Rhubarb is, I, I hope it, I hope that's like a natively English word, but I do like rhubarb. Have you ever had rhubarb? Yes. It's weird, right? It's like celery, except it's like weird. It's in a pie. It's like a celery pie. I like it. <laughs> Not until I, I lived in North Carolina for a couple of years, and all of a sudden someone came with a rhubarb pie. I'm like, shit, I am in the South. Like, this is what they do. You would never see a rhubarb anywhere north of Virginia. And I'm like, and I try, it's like, all right, got to try the celery pie. It's like, shit, this is good. <laughs> How is there a celery pie that's somehow good? This is not bullshit at all. So yeah, I have a very positive association with rhubarb, but it's an wow. like, it's, it's an adult association with rhubarb.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. I'm here to bring things to up. To bring rhubarb up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's why I'm here. Vegetables. Any durian memories you have? Dragon fruit, jackfruit, anything like that?
0: I was born in Soviet Union. I met banana when I was 13. Right. I
2: guess the only vegetable <laughs> she had was steak. Potato. Potato. Vegetable. All the way. Yeah. I think
0: it's in my DNA. Every, <laughs> everything,
2: right? All the you're the George Washington Carver of potatoes.
0: <laughs> 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 okay, so with this beautiful uh, rhubarb note, I think it's time to thank you for being here.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, and
0: uh, maybe just a quick uh, note about where do people where can people find you online? Uh, or come to your home. <laughs> <laughs> for, for coffee and,
1: and cake. Uh, so That's um, an
2: invitation. You can't take that back.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think I know where you live. Oh boy, oh boy. I, How many people w- listen to this? <laughs> uh, so, we'll put uh, that in the notes. You've been geotagged. If people want to follow, so on, on Instagram they can find just like Instagram poetry short snippets uh, and you can find me on Instagram word.magician mm-hmm. if people want to follow the uh, and, and, and read more on the stories that I post and the uh, articles that I write and, and the longer performance pieces and, uh, then they need to go to Facebook and that's where uh, Kevin Groen G-R-O-E-N uh, and otherwise he was
2: looking at me when he said that like I wouldn't get it <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, LinkedIn the same thing Kevin Groen
0: great So thank you so much, Kevin, for taking your time to be with us. Thank you very much. And we're still looking forward to the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Just coming coming directly. (laughs) (laughs) And for listeners at home, you can find uh, the transcript of this podcast and all the notes on our website, www.wordapodcast.com. And of course, on social media. So don't hesitate to say Hello.
2: So we want to have a conversation about this episode. Get in touch with me and Evie on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way to do it. We're on Twitter at WordUpPodcast, at WordUpPodcast. I run the Twitter. You'll be talking to me. You have firsthand interaction with somebody, one of the voices on the show. I will probably get back to you, probably say something very nice, but we want to hear what you have to say about it because we're very excited about our guests and we're very excited about the show. So come and talk to us, everybody.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much again. And thank you, Bill, for being a great co-host.
2: Thank you, Vivi. And I appreciate your co-hosting this as well.
0: Thank you. We are all very appreciative.
2: Yes, we're appreciative <laughs> people.
0: Thank you so much. And doee doee. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I By the know. way, okay. boobs, that's my favorite word, boobs, in English. <laughs>
0: you can say that. Well, you can no, say I that. could. I just
2: want to make sure I wasn't, you know.
0: Like specific boobs or just boobs?
2: <laughs> <laughs> all of them. I'm just a fan. Well, I like the word boobs because it makes you think of all the boobs. Yeah.